All right, we're in Revelation chapter 21. We're going to pick it up in verse 7, but I'm going to go back. I want to read uh, from the beginning of the chapter just so we get our full context going on here. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So we're at the end of the millennium, the final judgment of the wicked, the unrighteous, Satan, the whole shebang, all cast into the lake of fire. Then as you may recall, we've learned in recent weeks that God then will destroy the entire entirety of creation by fire and then create a whole new heaven and a new earth. And we talked about the possibility that the uh, language there could indicate with the earth not a total destruction because when we look at the flood of Noah, the Bible refers to the earth as being destroyed and yet the surface of the planet, the ecology, the, uh, the uh, geology, um, the atmosphere, everything about the earth was altered. The floodwaters did destroy things as they were known prior to the flood, but the planet itself remained and was basically altered. And then with this new heaven and new earth, it's possible that rather than completely destroying the earth, God will do the same thing as he did with the flood, only this time with fire, and then uh, totally recreate it, renovate it. But one way or the other, we're going to have a new heaven, a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. There will be rivers. We talked about the river, the waters of, of living water, but no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And we talked about the fact that this is probably what Jesus was referring to when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And my father's house are many mansions that he was speaking of the preparation of this city, the New Jerusalem, and how a number of Bible teachers believe that the New Jerusalem, as it comes down from heaven, will not physically touch down on planet Earth, but it will go into orbit around the Earth and that's where our dwelling place will be, the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And when we get uh, further on in the chapter, we will see how amazingly beautiful and glorious it is. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or dwelling of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people God himself will be with them and be their God. And so literally, during the millennium, Christ, we know, will rule and reign here on earth. He will be seated on his throne in Jerusalem. But after the millennium, and when God creates this new heaven, this new earth, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, God the Father, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the God who is a spirit, Jesus is the physical human manifestation of God, God the Son, God incarnate. But when we move into the realm of eternity and we dwell in the new Jerusalem, not only will Jesus be there, but God the Father will be there himself. He will make his tabernacle among us. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. And we talked about that this morning. The 
fact that yes, God does heal, but not always, because it's not always His plan, His purpose, His will to do so. But in eternity, there will be no more sorrow, no more dying, no more crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done, it is finished. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes, and this is where we're going to pick it up today, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, uh, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so that's where we pick it up. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word this morning. We ask that you would just cause your Holy Spirit to teach us, Lord, to feed us with your manna from heaven, the spiritual food that you've provided for us, Lord. Just We thank you for preparing an awesome meal for us. Help us to partake fully of that which you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. He who overcomes, and I want to just briefly point out something here. I know that we're starting to see some gender-neutral Bibles coming out and so forth, LGBTQ Bibles. They're now coming out with Bibles to try and cater to every segment of the population, but you notice in the Bible, if, you, if we use the reliable translations, that he is often used in a generic sense for men and women, just like the word mankind, and uh, many find that offensive today. We have terms like mansplaining, you know, where women say, don't mansplain to me. But understand, there's no intention in the Bible for any kind of a gender bias or prejudice. It's simply, historically, traditionally, that's been a reference for all human beings, male and female, he who overcomes it applies to she also. Mankind applies to men and women. And you might wonder, well, why? Why, why, is it not, why is it not womankind? You know, and so forth. But if you go back to the book of Genesis, you find that God created, created Adam first, right? And then he created woman out of Adam's side. And as we have sometimes pointed out in wedding ceremonies... He did not create woman out of Adam's foot so that Adam could walk all over her. And neither did he create woman out of Adam's head so that she could rule over him. He created woman out of Adam's side so that they could work together, walk together side by side through life. But people are so easily offended nowadays. I just thought I would, in case any ladies here today are uncomfortable with he who overcomes, I want you to know it applies to you too, okay? And we are in a, such a topsy-turvy world now that nobody really knows if they're a he or a she or a they or a them or what they are. So I don't even know how they could get offended. If you're not sure what you are anyway, what difference does it make, all right? <laughs> but let's talk about he or she... <laughs> Who overcomes? Throughout the scriptures, folks, you may have already noticed this. 
I'm sure I've pointed it out to you before, but the promises of God are always for those who overcome or endure. Mark 13, 13. And this is the kind of recruitment material that will really bring people into the church. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Right? Come on in. How many want to be hated? Jesus told us that. He, did, he gave us fair warning. And so it goes back to that old expression, uh, if uh, you were arrested for being a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you? If somebody somewhere doesn't hate you because of your faith, then maybe your light isn't shining brightly enough. It's no fun being hated. I don't like it, but I've kind of gotten used to it. <laughs> sort of. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he, again, or she, he who endures to the end. See, it would get kind of ridiculous if every time there was a comment in the scriptures about he, they also had to include she, be kind of redundant. So God is an economical God. He keeps it short and sweet. He who endures to the end will be saved. That always digs up the age-old question, well, I thought we were not saved by works, but by grace. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. We're saved by grace, book of Ephesians. So why does it say, he who endures to the end shall be saved? Well, if you firmly believe that you're saved by grace through faith and not of works, which is what we believe here at Calvary Chapel, the only explanation would be that he who endures to the end is a person who, or she, I'm kind of obsessed with that this morning, aren't I? He or she. That would mean that the person who endures to the end is someone who was truly born again, someone who was truly converted. Before I came up, I was talking to James Chavez back there, and he's sharing with me a little bit about their study at the uh, Young at Heart Bible study that they had yesterday morning, 55 plus. You're invited if you're in that age group. He talked about the fact that Paul... Immediately, at once he was relieved of his blindness, if you remember, he was struck blind and was blind for three days, he immediately went out and began to preach the gospel. And um, like James said, he didn't uh, wait around a few years to make sure it took. And that's a sign of true conversion. I think we've all experienced that in our own lives. We've witnessed it in the lives of others, that this immediate transformation. Now, some things go away instantly, and others do not. Sometimes we have struggles in our lives to overcome certain things. But by and large, a true conversion, there should be some kind of immediate evidence of that. But this evidence of conversion. And so when it says, He who endures to the end shall be saved, it doesn't mean that you're earning your salvation. It simply means if you're truly converted, if you're truly born again, then you will endure till the end. And so anytime we see someone who has made a profession of faith and has given indication of conversion, but after a while they seem to fall by the wayside, that should be a concern. And if that person is you, you should definitely be concerned. Because we're in it for the long haul, just like God is. Paul talks about running the race finishing the race set before him. And so I want to talk for a moment about
What are we to overcome or whom are we to overcome? One issue, an important issue as to be an overcomer is that we are to overcome the kingdom and the power of Satan. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock, and he's not talking about Peter, because Peter's name kind of means like pebble. Pebbles and bam, bam, you know. Um. <laughs> Jesus is the rock. Peter has just proclaimed in front of all the other disciples that to Jesus. Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Jeremiah, and others say, you know, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, and so forth. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Powerful pronouncement. And by the way, that's the pronouncement of a true believer. Not that Jesus is just a good teacher, a good man, a prophet, and so forth. You are the Christ, which means Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. You are the Christ, you're the Son of God. It's not enough to believe in Jesus as a good man or a prophet or a good teacher or what have you. To be truly converted, born again, you must believe and receive him as the one and only Son of the living God. And so then Jesus, based upon Peter's pronouncement, says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, this truth, that Peter, you have just stated that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm the rock. On this rock, me, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And so if you are in Christ, if you're born again, then you too will be able to stand up to the power and the kingdom of Satan. Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And by the way, gates are stationary, are they not? So what Jesus is referring to here is not a defensive posture, but an offensive posture that as believers, through the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, God has called us to, in essence, storm the gates of hell. Just like Jesus said, I've come to you know, bring recovery of sight to the blind, to heal the brokenhearted, to open the deafened ears, and so forth. And as his representatives, we have that same calling. Luke 10, 19, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents. Not like they do down south where they have those snake handling services. You ever seen, you know? Jesus even told Satan, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So in Luke here, it's not talking about you know, having ceremonial snake-handling services to, to prove the power of God. But in the course of everyday life, in the course of serving God, remember when Paul was building a fire on that island after they'd been shipwrecked, and this viper comes out of the brush and latches onto his arm, onto his hand? The people of the island thought, he must be a bad guy, he must be a murderer or something, He's going to die. He's going to swell up and die. He just shook the snake off and nothing happened. And then they thought he was a god. But the point is, Paul wasn't going around looking for snakes to handle. But when one 
as he was in the process of serving God, one of those things latched onto him and it had no effect on him, no impact. Trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And by the way, in the Bible, symbolically, serpents and scorpions have implications of demonic entities as well. We know that Satan is referred to as the serpent. So there is that spiritual underpinning here uh, of a promise that as we are committed and dedicated to serving God, that we will be protected from that demonic power. Because he says, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all, all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And again, this applies to those who are enduring, overcoming, following God. Having once become a believer, a follower of Christ, if you choose to kind of go your own way and go your own path, then these promises don't necessarily apply to you. You've taken yourself out from underneath God's hand of protection. It's a choice. God's given you a free will. You can live in submission to Him, or you can go do your own thing. I wouldn't recommend it, but many people do that. So we, have, we need to overcome, and God says we can. God says He's given us the ability. He's given us the power to overcome the kingdom and the power of Satan. Secondly, the world, we know there's an interconnection because Satan is the prince of this world, but there is a world system that is diametrically opposed to God. In 1 John 5, 4, for whatever or whoever is born of God, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So if you want to be someone who endures, somebody who overcomes that means, we've talked about this before too, that our faith requires maintenance, just like your vehicle requires maintenance, your house requires maintenance. And when you don't properly maintain these things, they tend to deteriorate and fall apart, and that can happen to your faith as well. If you don't ever change the oil on your car, sooner or later it's going to wear out your motor, right? If you don't ever replace the roof on your house, eventually all the rain's going to come down, pouring down through the roof and uh, cave in your ceiling. And we could go on and on with those analogies, but our faith is no different, folks. God imparts to us a measure of faith, enables us to trust Him and believe in Him for salvation, but we also have an obligation to maintain our faith. How do you do that? The Apostles' Doctrine, Book of Acts, they dedicated themselves to the Apostles' Doctrine, the, the Word of God. Not just reading it on your own and meditating upon it is an important part, but it also involves submitting yourself to sound biblical teaching on a regular basis because He's given apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists for the equipping of the saints. So going to church, fellowshipping with the saints, other believers, people who are like, of like mind and like heart, if you spend all your time around people who don't believe, sooner or later you're not going to believe either. Do you know that? I can guarantee it. I challenge anybody in this room to try to debunk that. If you spend all your time hanging out with people who don't believe, you will become a non-believer. You need Christian fellowship. You need Bible teaching, worship, 
You can worship anytime, any place, in your car, in your home, wherever you can get away with it. But there is something powerful and dynamic about corporate worship. When the body of Christ is gathered together, whenever two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there in the midst of them. These are the elements. Prayer, obviously. Regular communion with God. Talking with God. Interacting with God. Interacting with other believers. These are all part, just like changing your oil, putting air in your tires, filling up your coolant reservoir. All the things that go into maintaining your car, there are things that go into maintaining your faith, and if you don't do them, your faith will grow weak. There's another old saying, seven days without the word makes one weak. Get it? John 16, 33. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Just like Mark 13, 13, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And so here, in the world you'll have tribulation. People will hate you, you'll have trials, tribulation. But be of good cheer. Because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. So, to be an overcomer, folks, we must remain in Christ. And again, that involves maintenance. Another aspect of our maintenance, practicing regular confession and repentance of our sins. Because even though we don't want to sin anymore as believers, sometimes we do, do we not? We've not been perfected yet. We're on, the we're on the way. We're on the road. We're not there yet. That's no excuse to sin. But by the same token, uh, in 1 John, John says, He who says he has no sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So another part of our spiritual maintenance to maintain our faith, to keep it strong is to practice regular confession and repentance of our sins. To be an overcomer, we must remain in Christ. He who overcomes shall inherit all these things. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That ties in with what I said. If you spend all your time hanging out with people who don't believe, you will become a non-believer. But do not be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. Again, we don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. How do we overcome the evil in this world? By being good. We can only do that with God's help, with the power of His Holy Spirit. The overcomer, although not perfect, is one who, generally speaking, lives a good life in Christ. If you take on the attitude, well, I'm, I'm saved by grace through faith, not of works, once saved, always saved, therefore I can do whatever I want. I can sleep with whomever I choose. I can take whatever substance I choose because I'm not saved by my works. Well, Paul definitely refutes that whole argument. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Again, not to, re to earn salvation, but as a result of being saved. I want to read this passage from 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. And this will really kind of get you thinking. For if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. And so Peter here is warning us about the dangers of going back. Remember when the children of Israel left Egypt, there were those who wanted to go back? They were complaining about all the great things that they left behind. When they were there, they were miserable. But once they had left, they started thinking about everything they'd left behind, the onions, the leeks, and the garlic, and blah, blah, blah. And that happens sometimes with believers. Once you've been saved, set free, cleansed, washed, renewed, maybe after a while... You know, because it's being married to God, being married to Christ. We're the bride of Christ. And sometimes in marriage, you know, that initial excitement begins to wear off. Maybe you start thinking about the old relationships, the old boyfriends, the old girlfriends, and how great it was. If it was that great, what happened to them? Where did they go? Where did you go? You start thinking about all the fun you used to have with partying with your friends and so forth, or whatever kind of indulgences you were involved in. But Peter is warning here. If you become entangled, again entangled in these things and overcome, the latter end is far worse than the beginning. Better not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. And it's a real challenge because again, The fact that we are saved by the grace of God, not by our own works, which is the true biblical perspective on salvation. We've talked before about legalism, those groups that make you feel like every time you sin you have to get saved again. But then the other extreme where, oh, you're, you're, you're saved by grace through faith, once saved, always saved, you can do whatever you want. The Bible doesn't teach either one of those. We talked about Paul saying, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a lifelong process. Some days are better than others. Some days we do better than others. But to be an overcomer, we have to continually be pushing onward, pushing forward. I've shared this analogy before as well that I forget where I heard it. It's always stuck with me that uh, being a believer, a follower of Christ is like riding a bicycle uphill. Some can do it faster than others, right? So for some, it's a real struggle. But the thing is, no, no matter how slow or fast you're going up that hill, the minute you stop pedaling, what happens? You roll down. You roll backwards down the hill. So we have to continue to fight the good fight of the faith, to run the race set before us, to be an overcomer, because that's who the blessings are for 
the overcomers. And what about these overcomers? He that overcomes shall inherit all things. So there is a dynamic, powerful, amazing, tremendous reward for these efforts. All things, everything that belongs to God, all that he has made, all the things that you and I are in awe of, which will all be recreated, renewed, remade in God's eternal kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth, all the glories which we will see again later in the chapter, inherit all things, not just some. You know, a lot of times when someone writes up a will, and hopefully if they're not mad at some of their family members, everybody gets an equal share, whatever they dole it out, you know, kids get so much, grandkids get so much, whatever. With God, we all get it all. All things. How amazing and incredible is that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, would give to us that inheritance that we will have all things. Everything that he has made will be ours. And then he says, and this is even more important, I will be his God and he shall be my son. The Old Testament promise to the people of Israel was made to them as a whole, but now it becomes a very intimate and personal one. Exodus 6, 7, I will take you as my people. So God took the children of Israel to himself as his people. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. And then in Galatians 3, 26, for you are all sons of God, or daughters, through faith in Christ Jesus. So not only will we inherit all things, even more importantly, he says, I will be your God and you will be my son or daughter. And the significance, again, of a son in this ancient culture is a person who is the rightful heir of God forever. Sonship is a special honor associated with the Davidic covenant. It includes privileged intimacy with God and the authority to rule. But again, in God's kingdom... Women are equal recipients of this promise. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ. So this inheritance is for all of God's people, all of God's children, regardless of gender. Romans 8.16 and 17 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. That's talking about this life. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. In this world, you'll have tribulation. All men will hate you. That's the challenge. Are you willing? Am I willing to endure these things for a short period of time in exchange for all the glories of eternity that God has promised to those who overcome. Are you willing? Is it worth it? Absolutely. So we've talked about overcoming the kingdom and the power of Satan. We've talked about overcoming the world. And now we'll talk about overcoming the flesh. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Save this life, here and now, the things of this world, 
the things that we tend to latch onto, grab onto, the, the things that we desire of this world, the temporal things, the temporary things. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. If your focus is on this life, the pleasures of this life, the rewards of this life, the perks of this life, Jesus says you're going to lose it all. But whoever loses his life for my sake, now it could be literal, you could become a martyr for Christ, but what he's saying is losing it, setting it aside, denying yourself the pleasures of this life, the pleasures of this world, for the sake of following Christ. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Good question, right? Or what will man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. We could never pay that price. Jesus paid the price. But you could be at the top of the heap. You could be a Bill Gates, an Elon Musk, a Mark Zuckerberg, who just lost a big bundle. <laughs> I feel so bad for him, don't you? I'm sure he's got some more bundles. You could be one of those people, but if you lose your own soul, then you've lost it all. This is the battle to overcome the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.24, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This scripture will really challenge you, won't it? Convict you, and I know it does me. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How many of us on a daily basis look in the mirror and see a dead man or a dead woman? Because that's what he's saying. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. We are crucified with Christ. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. That's an ongoing challenge. As we studied the book of Romans a few years ago, we saw that ongoing conflict, that duality, that dual nature. We have the new man or the new woman in Christ, but that old nature keeps trying to rise up like a zombie. And the zombie movies, right? The zombie TV programs, they don't ever, you can't kill them. They just keep coming back. You got to keep blowing their heads off and keep chopping their heads off and whatever else they do. I don't really watch a lot of that stuff. I've seen enough to know. It's the same way with the old man, with the flesh. Crucifying the flesh is not a one-time deal. It's a daily challenge. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, this is the NIV, No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I strike a blow, or the Revised Standard Version says, I pommel my body. I think I've mentioned before how sometimes I have a problem when I'm traveling, driving long distance, I get drowsy. Anybody get that road hypnotism, you know? And I'll start slapping myself in the face or on top of my head to stay awake. Well, Paul says, I beat my body into submission. So that tells you Paul had the same struggle that you and I have. 
But what happens if you don't beat your body into submission? The flesh takes over. You're not an overcomer. The flesh is overcoming you. I strike a blow. I pommel my body and make it my slave. So that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul says, I've got to practice what I preach. I've got to be what I tell other people they must be. But again, that's it, being an overcomer, overcoming the desires of the flesh, the compulsions of the flesh. It's not easy, but that's part of being an overcomer. And again, that's why we need all of these various maintenance things that we've talked about, the prayer, the worship, the Bible study, the Christian fellowship, and so forth. Because there are times when we need help. A lot of times. We need someone to talk with, someone to pray with, someone to stand with us. And then conversely, we can be there for them as well. So what we're coming up on, just to give you a preview, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So in verse 7, we have all the wonderful, glorious things that will come to those who overcome. Just a brief overview. It says we'll inherit all things. We've focused in this morning on what that looks like to be an overcomer. But then in verse 8, which we're going to have to hold over till next week, it talks about all those who will miss out on all these wonderful things and who will be, uh, take their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I would just point out as we close, let's stand this morning. He's, he refers here, first of all, in verse 8, to the cowardly. And folks, the final point this morning... It takes guts to stand for God, doesn't it? But God will give you the guts if you ask Him, if you yield your life to Him, if you submit to Him. Father, give me the strength to be an overcomer. But it's important to know what we're supposed to overcome, don't you think? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three great enemies of the faith. And by the way, when you take a break, they don't. You get it? When you take a break, they don't. It's a daily battle, but it's a battle worth fighting because we know who wins, right? Let's pray. Before we go into prayer, I'm going to ask anyone who has a prayer request this morning if you'd raise your hand. We'd like to include you this morning in this prayer request. See those hands. Father God, I lift up each one to you now. Lord, you know each person that just raised their hand. Lord, you know the ones that didn't. And there may be some that did not raise their hand, but they have a prayer request too. So we lift each one up to you, those that raised their hands, those that didn't. And Lord, we thank you that you're so awesome and wonderful and powerful that you know every heart, you know every mind, you know every issue. And we lift them up to you now. First, any health problems that are represented here this morning, Father, by those hands, whether it be a cold, allergies, cancer, leukemia, whatever it might be, Father, you know. It could be anything, but it's nothing is too difficult for you. COVID, Lord, COPD, you name it. Lord, these are all afflictions that are part of the curse that's upon our world. Lord, a fallen world. We know it's not your fault. We don't blame you. 
you are not the origin of sickness. But as we've seen so many raise their hands this morning and testify to those times when they've experienced your healing power in their lives, we pray now for healing for all those who have a health issue on their mind, on their heart. We pray, out you, pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon them and bring healing to them. Bring relief and release from pain, Father, and healing of all afflictions in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for financial issues. Lord, we're living in difficult times right now with this pandemic, and many people have lost jobs, changed jobs. Income levels have dropped in some cases. Prices have gone up in many cases. But Lord, we look to you. You are our provider. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. And you are sufficient for us, Lord. And you did promise to take care of us and provide us with our daily bread, with those things that we need. We ask that you would provide for each one this morning that has a request of that nature. Lord, we pray for mental and emotional issues. We live in a stressed out world with a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression and so forth. But Lord, again, in Christ, we can rise above that. We can overcome our fears, our doubts, our worries, our anxieties, our depression. And I pray that you would lift off of each one, Lord, who has that kind of a request today, that you would fill them with your joy and your peace, help them to overcome the trials that they're experiencing right now. And Lord, for relationships, we know that the enemy comes but to steal, to kill, to destroy, to destroy families, to destroy marriages, to destroy friendships. But Lord, you're a healer. You're a redeemer. You came that we might have life and life more abundantly. I pray for abundance. Poured out upon all those who are struggling with relationships. We pray for healing of marriages, healing for friendships, healing for work relationships, school relationships, neighborhood Lord, we ask for reconciliation, redemption, restoration, and we trust you. We believe in you, Lord. You hear our prayers. You answer our prayers, and so we thank you right now for answering these prayer requests in the mighty name of Jesus. We thank you for your word today. We pray that you'd plant your word deep within our hearts and help us to do those things that we need to do to maintain our faith, to be overcomers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.